I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. The death toll in Turkey and Syria has passed 7,000 people since powerful earthquakes hit the region on Monday. Massive rescue efforts are underway, and agencies are warning that the number of fatalities will likely be much higher. The scenes have been devastating, just as survivors were trying to process the first 7.8 magnitude quake There were dozens of destructive aftershocks that followed, including one that measured 7.5. The deadly earthquake is likely causing some anxiety here in the Bay Area. We've long been told that we should be preparing for our own next big one. The most recent major earthquake in Bay Area history was the 1989 Loma Prieta quake. It caused large sections of the Bay Bridge to collapse. Channel one emergency. Yes, have you gotten word about the Bay Bridge? What about the Bay Bridge? What's going on the upper deck appears to have collapsed during that earthquake. Hold on a second. Jesus Christ. That earthquake measured 6.9 magnitude. It lasted for 15 seconds and killed 63 people, most of them when a section of freeway collapsed in Oakland. Bay Area cities have improved building codes and strengthened infrastructure in the decades since. But the likelihood of another destructive quake is a reality for our region. Austin Elliott is a geological researcher for the United States Geological Survey. Today on Fifth Emission, he joins me to talk about what a major quake, like the one in Turkey, would look like here in the Bay Area. When can we expect the next big one, and what can we do to prepare? Austin Elliott, welcome to Fifth Emission. Thanks. It's great to be here. Now, Austin, the devastation in Turkey and Syria has been enormous. Thousands of lives lost, thousands of buildings flattened. Was this earthquake particularly unique in any way. What was your impression of it? The great magnitude of this earthquake, 7.8, is really approaching the upper end of what we expect within the continents. That said, it's not a particularly surprising or unexpected earthquake. It's a very large one, but the East Anatolian Fault, along which it happened, is a well-known structure. The seismic hazard of the region has been well-documented for decades and Turkey's been understood to be a place that's really prone to earthquakes. And this tragedy is reminding many of us in the Bay Area that we also live in a region with high earthquake risks. How does the scale of this earthquake compare to earthquakes that have happened here in the Bay Area? It's actually quite remarkable how similar sort of tectonically and seismologically the event in Turkey was to our famous historic earthquake, the 1906 event on the San Andreas Fault. It was also uh, magnitude 7.8, maybe 7.9. It lasted for over a minute of shaking. The strong shaking was experienced up and down the coast of Northern California, not just in San Francisco. So in terms of the scale and the distribution of intense shaking that came from these earthquakes, it's it's really similar to what we have experienced in the past and expect again in the future from the San Andreas Fault. And how does Turkey's earthquake compare to the major earthquake in our most recent memory, the Loma Prieta earthquake of 1989? Yeah, the Loma Prieta earthquake was obviously a devastating event, but in the scheme of earthquakes and earthquakes that we could face in this region, it was not moderate, but it was certainly not the largest. In some ways, it was really fortunate to have occurred in the mountains rather than down in the cities. We have plenty of faults that 
lie underneath our cities, which would bring that sort of magnitude closer to home for a lot more people. Austin, I understand that the earthquake in Turkey happened at what they call a strike slip fault. Can you give us a little geology lesson here? Remind us of the fault lines we have here in California. Are they similar? We categorize faults based on the direction that either side moves. And so you either have extensional faults or compressional faults. And then the third option is that the sides just move side to side rather than spreading apart or coming together. They're just moving laterally next to each other. That's the same type of plate boundary that we have here in California. So the San Andreas is probably the world's most famous strike-slip fault. It's the largest, sort of longest, it's maybe the the oldest, and it also is the fastest slipping, which means earthquakes recur along it more frequently than on any of the other faults. The other household name around here is the Hayward Fault. That runs up the spine of the East Bay. It is accompanied by a slew of others. To its east and south is the Calaveras Fault, runs through sort of Pleasanton, Walnut Creek. And then to the north, There are additional faults. The names go on and on. There's the Green Valley Fault, Berryessa Fault. Essentially, what we have is a set of more or less three major strands of the plate boundary system. So how does this collection of different faults in our area contribute to our earthquake risk? Each one of these faults is capable of producing large earthquakes. There is ongoing research about how much they can link together to produce even larger earthquakes. Ultimately, because the San Andreas is sort of the longest, most simple and fastest moving of these structures, it tends to be capable of the largest earthquakes. So this magnitude 7.8, like we saw in Turkey, the 1906 earthquake, which was about 7.9. These are the sorts of events that we may expect from the San Andreas fault. The Hayward Fault, the Calaveras Fault, these sort of other collection of structures that make up our plate boundary are definitely capable of major earthquakes in the magnitude 7 range. We refer to earthquakes epicenters, you know, the the point where they start. But really, earthquakes occur because of slip along a fault, and that fault breaks over a certain distance. And Essentially, the larger the length of that fault that breaks, the larger the magnitude of the earthquake. A magnitude 7 or so earthquake in the East Bay would rupture something like 100 or so kilometers of the fault. That's maybe 60 miles or so. The length of that is a few East Bay cities long. And so you just really involve more and more communities in the most severe shaking from these events. Austin, there has been some reporting about Turkey's earthquake that pointed out that the region was, quote, overdue for a big one, that stress had been building for some time along the fault over there. And that's certainly something that's top of mind for many Bay Area residents. Should we be bracing ourselves for a big one? And can we even predict something like that? This is pretty much the top question that we get asked as earthquake scientists. We've shied away from using the word overdue because the natural system is doing what the natural system does. If an earthquake is due, it'll come due. What we do know from our research on the 
past history of earthquakes in the geologic record, we know the average recurrence time of these sorts of major earthquakes on the faults. And that's really what we use to get our best estimates of how frequently they will recur. We can give an average recurrence time. It'll be a number like 160 years, plus or minus 50, 60, 80 years. So there's sort of an entire lifetime of uncertainty in exactly when that earthquake will come due again. What that means is that, for example, the Hayward Fault has now met its recurrence interval. The last earthquake on the Hayward Fault was in 1868. The average recurrence interval is somewhere around a century and a half, plus or minus a few decades. And so we're now in that window, and it would not be a surprise for the Hayward Fault to produce a major earthquake. And in this case, it's it's really a race against the clock for us to make sure that we're prepared before the inevitable next one happens. More with earthquake scientist Austin Elliott after a quick break. Which parts of the Bay Area are the most vulnerable during a major earthquake? Austin will also offer some tips on how to prepare for the big one. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Austin, I understand that your team recently built a map to forecast the risk of major earthquakes in California. I want to talk about that some more. What areas in the Bay Area showed the highest levels of risk? You mentioned Hayward Faults. What else should we be looking at? So what we've done at the USGS is compile all the information we have about how frequently these faults have had earthquakes in the geologic record that we can recognize in the past. Only a few of them have had major earthquakes in the historic record. And from all these estimations, from the measurements we've made, the Hayward Fault is the most likely among them to produce the next earthquake. So if you live in the East Bay, by definition, you're pretty close to the Hayward Fault. Shaking there is going to be much stronger. There are also factors like the nature of the ground, the soil beneath you, that control it's the age-old truism that rock is really more stable than sand. Things that are built on sedimentary basins, the flat-lying soils, especially water-saturated soils, those are really vulnerable to extra shaking. We have a lot of vulnerable areas that are on flat sedimentary land, made land, places like the Marina in Mission Bay, Treasure Island, Alameda in West Oakland. So living away from the faults and living on solid rock are two ways to reduce your exposure to the really extreme shaking from earthquakes. But the reality for many people is that we live in a place that will be subject to, to violent ground motions. And it's something that we need to think about being prepared for. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the videos from Turkey now that show building after building collapsing, and it's it's pretty shocking to watch. How much does the infrastructure of buildings play into the scale of the damage? It's not the earthquake that kills people, it's the buildings that kill people. The level of preparedness for this sort of thing varies substantially around the world. You look at places like Chile and Japan, they ride through magnitude 7 earthquakes frequently, practically unscathed. And that's because 
they face them frequently and they have building codes that accommodate them. You have to build your infrastructure in order to handle what the natural world throws at you. And there are many ways to do that with earthquakes. We don't need to fear them. They don't necessarily need to lead to collapses all over the place and the sort of destruction that we see a lot of the time. And since in the Bay Area we have substantial history of earthquakes, our building codes have kept up with them. We learn more after each new event that happens. We learn what didn't work. And these days we have sophisticated computer modeling that engineers use to make sure that buildings will withstand really significant ground motions. The built environment really is the biggest threat during earthquakes. Whereas we can't control when the earthquake happens, where it happens, we can control what is built ready for us to face it. How much confidence do you have in the buildings in the Bay Area to endure a major earthquake? We expect the majority of buildings to withstand the significant shaking that we expect. There are older buildings. There are buildings that are grandfathered in. There are, you know, buildings built before adjustments to the building code. They're vulnerable. So with a large enough earthquake, we do expect to see damage, destruction, and some collapses. But a lot of Bay Area cities have taken this risk and this threat really seriously and done a lot to improve the situation. San Francisco has been largely successful at sturdying these buildings and bracing the most at-risk residential buildings against collapses like we saw in 1989, for example. Austin, that's good news, but it's still really important for us to prepare for a major earthquake. It's not a question of if, but when. How should we be doing that? As individuals, our control lies outside of the built environment. It's really good to see these advancements in construction, engineering, but there are still great threats to our lifelines, especially things that cross faults or run through vulnerable soils. Utility pipes of any kind, sewers, water distribution, gas, power distribution, freeways, train tracks. There are lots of things that inevitably can't avoid faults, can't avoid areas with strong shaking. And those are going to be where a lot of the problems come in for us after a big earthquake. So when you're thinking about preparedness, there are a lot of different things you can do. I think the most salient ones are there will probably be disruptions to the electrical distribution grid and the water distribution grid. It's important to keep things on hand like battery packs, charged little battery packs. You can buy these little electrical generators. You can even buy sort of hand crank generators and various things. You know, expect that electricity will go out for a few days. It's also Important to consider the availability of water. You don't need a garage full of bottled water, but you should think about having enough to supply yourself and your family for a couple days. It is useful to have camping equipment on hand, a little propane stove that you might boil stuff on. People are going to end up on the other side of an earthquake with very different resources available to them. You know, maybe your friends live in a really vulnerable building and you don't. And it's worth thinking about how you can connect with the community that's immediately around you to share resources. We've recognized like through the 
COVID pandemic, for example, that the incapacitation of the local economy has really devastating impacts. And that's what we really want to avoid after an earthquake, because that will compound and extend a disaster. And so the strategy that has largely been adopted around here is trying to keep people in place after an event so that people don't get scared off, that society remains functioning, that businesses that have suffered damage can get the community around them, get their economy back up and running in order to make the repairs that they need in order to keep the city thriving and vibrant. We've too often seen cases where a city really gets gutted by a disaster. And I think we, we want to strive to not let that happen. Austin, really vital information and advice here. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Austin Elliott is an earthquake geologist at the U.S. Geological Survey's Earthquake Science Center in the Bay Area. He suggests checking out the website earthquakecountry.org for more tips on earthquake preparedness. For more reporting on how a major earthquake would play out in the Bay Area, check out Chronicle reporter Tara Duggan's story at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Also, remember, Fit the Mission is celebrating our 1,000th episode on Thursday, February 16th. It's going down at 6.30 p.m. at Manny's in the Mission. We'll be talking about labor organizing in the Bay Area and the recent wave of layoffs in the tech industry. Join me, co-host Damian Bulwa, and our special guests, Zoe Schiffer from The Platformer and Anand Singh, president of Unite Here Local 2. It'll be a great conversation, and I'd love to meet you in person. For tickets, visit welcometomannies.com. Thank you to Francesca Fenzi for producing this episode, to Gary Baca for editing it, and to you for listening. Mm-hmm.